Genesis chapter 50. All right, we're going to start in verse 19. And just to let you know, today is the last day in the study of Genesis. This is our last study. Uh, this is study number 33. In a couple of weeks, we're going to start a summer series on the church. It's called Ecclesia. That's the Greek word for the name church. And then in August, we're doing a very comprehensive study uh, of the gospel according to John. So, so Genesis 50, starting in verse 19. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? And this is our focal point here. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Let me just reread that again. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for am I in the place of God? This is a topic for another time, but listen, don't play God in people's lives. Joseph didn't. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And Father, we want to thank you this morning for all that you've taught us in this book. It's just been a, a rich time of learning more about you. God, our, our knowledge of you for sure has expanded. Our love for you and our understanding of your love for us has been deepened. God, you've convicted us of sin. You have healed broken relationships. For some of us, God, this, uh, the study of this book was the introduction into our relationship with you. Some, some here in this room were responded to the gospel and were born again and water baptized. And Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you, God, that when we open your book, you speak. And we pray that you would, today, as we wrap up this study, just Really give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. And God, draw our eyes to your Son, our Savior, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> you know those people in your life who have to have the last word? <laughs> you know the people I'm talking about? Like maybe, it really doesn't matter what the issue is, maybe, maybe it's sports, right? And so you're having a conversation about sports and it always seems to come back to their team or their quarterback. Uh, maybe it's politics, you know, I mean those people that just are just uh, really passionate about politics and they always seem to have to get the, the final word in on whatever political issues being discussed. Maybe, you know, in relationships, you're close to people that when it's a heated argument or there's something that's being debated, um, you know, you go through the process of discussion and it seems as if they always have to, they always have to end the, end the conversation with their punctuation mark. You know, they've got, got to get the final text in. They've got to get the final email in. If you're like that, would you raise your hand this morning? I, I'm just curious. Wow, what a bunch of liars. I can't believe it. There's like three of you, four, all right? Five, thank you. Do I have six? Going seven, eight, ten? Do I got ten? All right. All right. I just have to say the first service was way more honest than you guys are. You know, there was one guy, I thought he put his hand up and then pointed over to his wife like this, which I do not suggest at all. Um, but I will tell you, like, I think for sure there have been times in my life where I, 
I've been that guy. I've been that guy. And I hope I'm not that guy. I probably need to have a conversation with my friends and with my family um, to find out what the reality is. But I have learned over the course of time that last words are best left to God. Last words are best left to God. You know, it is always the best when God gets the last word. And I, you know, was thinking about this with respect to the way that certain books in the Bible end. And I was thinking about various ends and beginnings, like in the book of Revelation, such a powerful beginning, right? The revelation of Jesus Christ, those are the first five words of that book. And if you get that piece right there, you will get the rest of the book. The whole point is about him. So what a powerful beginning that book has. And then I think about the final words in that book, which are this, the grace of our Lord be with you all, amen. Right, and that's just, I mean, that's amazing, not just for that book, but for the, for the whole canon of Scripture. Like, the Bible ends with those words, the grace of our Lord be with you all, amen. I think about the book of Genesis, in the beginning God, right, in the beginning God, so powerful and, and so vast and obviously so descriptive, and it sets the table for, it did set the table for our study in the book of Genesis, And all of the things we learned about God and the key questions that we have as human beings answered in this book. And then we get to the end of the book and some of the last words, all right? I think, you know, from technically, obviously, these aren't exactly the last words, but they're the last quoted words, the words of Joseph. And I think that they're indicative of the key principle of Genesis itself. Let me reread the verse for you. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. I think the way that this book ends, like it's a punctuation mark. You know, you could perceive it as a period or maybe as an exclamation point, but it lays out this key principle, this key principle that we have seen really is the foundation of the book of Genesis and is the principle of redemption. God is able to redeem. God is able to take what humanity does, and we'll, we'll drill down on this a little bit more, but he's able to take what humanity does, and because he's God, he can shape it and turn it into good, right? This really is the, the, the kind of climax, if you will, of the whole book. And it's not, you know, probably period is not the right punctuation mark. It's probably just a comma because it's not as if the concept of redemption ends with Genesis. It is, in a way, opening up this principle to the rest of the Bible because redemption is the principle of Scripture. Redemption is the thread that runs through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Sometimes, you know, when we look at this book, we think, well, yeah, it is one book, but really there's 66 books, and they're kind of connected to each other. I don't really know how they're connected. They're all in there, and they mean different things. And sometimes, you know, in our minds, we fragment, we fragment uh, the, the scriptures, and we disconnect how integrated the Bible is. You know, there's another way to look at it. It's like it is one book with 66 different chapters, and all of them are leading into the next book, and, and, and ultimately they have their climax in the book of Revelation. It is an integrated story, and there is a single message that runs through the Bible. Let me say it like this to you today. Redemption is not only the message of Genesis, it is the theme that runs through the whole of Scripture. Redemption is not 
only the message of Genesis. It is the theme that runs through the whole of Scripture. And I think that the, the principle of redemption is more than adequately caught here in what Joseph says. Remember, Joseph's brothers uh, were, if you know the story here in Genesis chapter 50, at this point, Jacob has died. Their father has died. And their thought is this, man, we're, we're toast. Because the only reason Joseph has chosen to, kept us, to keep us alive is because our father is still alive. And their thought was this, once our father is dead, Joseph, who has all of the power and all of the authority, you know, that little guy with the funny little coat who had all of these dreams that have ultimately been fulfilled, and now he kind of rules and reigns supremely as Pharaoh's right-hand man, you know, it's over for us. And so they come to Joseph um, after Jacob dies, and Jacob, jo Joseph says these words. You know, he says, am I in the place of God? Listen, you guys intended all of these things for evil. There was wickedness in your heart. You know, there was no benevolence. There was no love. You were not magnanimous. You didn't have my best interest in mind. I mean, it was evil through and through. You started with wanting to murder me, and then you decided just to sell me so you could make some money. But all of that evil, although that was your intention, God had another intention. God had another plan. God was working behind the scenes. God had something up his sleeve. There was something that the Lord was doing. And you know what God intends always outweighs what man intends. That's right. In fact, I want you to think about these two realities and how they, they exist simultaneously. We live in a reality where there is what humanity means and what God means. And today when I say that, I absolutely am not presenting them as equals. When I say humanity means this and God means this, I'm not saying that they exist equally to one another. I'm also not saying to you today that they exist as parallel lines that never, never intersect. Sometimes when theologians or Bible scholars talk about uh, free moral agency or free will and the sovereignty of God, they present them as two parallel lines that exist simultaneously, and I get that, but, but they don't just run parallel to each other. They cross over, right? I mean, they're engaged in such a way that it's hard for us to separate out free moral agency and divine sovereignty, but we know that in the intricacy of God's creation, as he rules and reigns over all things, as he has dominion over all things, he has allowed us to have the capacity to choose in such a way that it does have impact, but still what God determines and what God intends stands. And, and this brings us to such an important point. Human failure does not frustrate God's purpose. Do you believe that today? He, well... You better believe it, like you better believe it, and it better be something more than just like a theological principle that you've agreed to intellectually, like you should be able to say this is how it's worked out in your life. Human failure, like how many times, we'll get to that in just a second, human failure does not frustrate the purpose of God because in all of it, right, in the complexity of the reality that we live in, God still intends, God determines. You may use the word God decrees. 
So what God has purposed stands, and then not only that, but God also redeems. God redeems. God can take what humanity does, and he can shape it in such a way that it fundamentally fulfills his divine purposes. I want you to think about some of the stories in the scripture that convey this point. Adam, of course, meant to rebel and to eat of the tree in the garden. God meant to send a Messiah, Jonah meant to run from God. God meant to bring him back to rescue Nineveh. Nebuchadnezzar meant to murder the Jewish boys. God meant to glorify himself and to be present with them in the midst of that fiery furnace. Paul meant to persecute the church of God. God meant to save him. Judas meant to betray Jesus. God meant for Jesus to die for our sins. Look, we see these two things operating simultaneously, and we see the purpose and the will of God being victorious in the end. I hope you're grateful for that today. I am... I am sure, I am sure there are, there are circumstances, and, and I think about this from Joseph's perspective. You know, it's not like Joseph went to the rabbinical school of theology and then wrote this. There was no rabbinical school of theology. Joseph wasn't sitting down with the scribes and, and the lawyers of the law and, and, and then framing, you know, these very complex things in terms that he had learned intellectually. Like, this was his life. He was able to say this because this was what God did. And, you know, I hope that you can say that as well. Like, there are, I'm sure, are circumstances in your life where you yourself can say, you know what, my intention was wrong and my, 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 my motivation was wrong. I shouldn't have been thinking it. I shouldn't have been saying it. I shouldn't have been doing it. But when the Spirit of God convicted me and drew me to a place of repentance and I asked God for mercy, placing my failure in his hand, you know what God did? You know what the Almighty God, the, the maker of heaven and earth did? He took those things that I had fact intended for evil and he turned them and used them for good listen I, I hope that they're now now, li, now let me say this some of you are like wow that's awesome so I'll just sin more so so that God can you know make good out of it that's exactly what some people were doing with the teaching of the apostle Paul and he had to say stop it cut it out cut it out like that for sure is never the real motivation of a Christian but glory be to God Listen, where would we be if God wasn't able to do this? Maybe today you are living under the burden and the weight of your failure and there is just an overwhelming sense of guilt and shame and you feel like there's no way out. Like that proverbial stone has just rolled over your life and it is all darkness and impossibility. I want to tell you today that with God through faith in Jesus Christ there is hope, there is life, there is light, there is victory, there is another opportunity that God is not only the God of second chances but third chances and fourth chances, and fifth chances, right? And for some of us, uh, a millionth chances. When I say redeem, you know, some of you are thinking, well, that's kind of a technical term, you know, what does it mean? I'm not gonna give you a technical definition today, but I want you to think about what the word means in three different languages, all right? So I know that sounds technical, but it's, it's really not. In, when we say redeem in English, we're giving uh, an idea or we're presenting this, this concept of buying something back, exchanging something for something else. Uh, when we use it in a religious sense, it always involves sacrifice. 
So just very simply, you know, uh, you are given a gift at the Connect Desk. It's a coupon for a coffee at Beyond, which, by the way, is a great coffee shop. And, and what you do is you take that coupon. Some of you are like, it's coupon, not coupon. And that's the only thing you're going to remember from this message, all right? <laughs> Shame on you. You're going to take that and you're going to go to the coffee shop and you're going to exchange it. They're going to take your little piece of paper and, you know, it's good for, it's good for, they're going to take it from you and they're going to put a, they're going to put a cup of coffee, an amazing cup of coffee in your hand. It's been redeemed. You've redeemed the coupon. You know, you go to the store. I don't know if anyone uses coupons at stores anymore, but you've got a 50 cent coupon. You, get, you, you ever run into somebody, it's like you pick the wrong line and there, there's that person, the coupon person. <laughs> They're like, you know, it's here somewhere. I'm like, yeah, it is. I'll give you 50 cents, okay, because this is, this is taking forever. And then they pull out like 50 coupons, and they've not even connected the coupon with what they have in their cart. And the cashier's like, nope, 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 nope. I always pick that line. You know what I'm talking about? But, but you're, you're redeeming, you're exchanging. The, the biblically, you know, when we use this, this English word, we're talking about exchange with, with the sacrifice. It's costing somebody something. When we use the, the word in, in Greek, and there are different Greek words that we translate into the word redeem. Apolutrosis is the, is the general word. But it means to loose from something in the sense of rescuing. So historically, this Greek word was used when there was a slave who was set free. There was a slave that, that wanted their freedom, and so perhaps someone came along and they paid the price. There would be a price, financial price, that would be paid so that they would go from a place of enslavement to a place of liberty and freedom. And then in the Old Testament, when this Hebrew word is used, it means to pay a price to cover sin, and so oftentimes you'll see the word redeem and the word atone used uh, simultaneously or in conjunction with each other because it was always talking about paying a price to deal with the issue of sin. So think about this, all right? In English, we're talking about someone making a, a sacrifice to exchange, right? In Greek, we're talking about setting someone free. They paid a price so that someone who is enslaved to something can be set free. In Hebrew, we're talking about dealing with the issue of division and brokenness between ourselves and God. That we're born into this condition of sin. We're born with the iniquity of Adam that's been transferred to us, but we've all sinned and trespassed in things we've thought, said, and done. And so there's a brokenness that needs to be mended so that we can be at one with God. When we use the word redeem, we mean all those things. So I want to synthesize them into one statement about Jesus Christ and how he redeemed. Because when we talk about redemption, we're always talking about what Jesus did for us. So Jesus sacrificed his life in our place to rescue us from the slavery of our sin to make us one with God for eternity. When we take those three concepts and we bring them together, the concept of exchange, the concept of rescue, and the concept of atonement, and we look at it through the lens of Christ, this is what we discover. He sacrificed his life. He gave his life in our place. The death that we deserved, he experienced so that we could live the life that he provides for us. 
He died in our place to rescue us from our slavery. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none who are righteous, no, not one. We talk about free moral agency and the ability to choose, but the truth is this, apart from Jesus Christ, you can't choose not to sin. I mean, there may be moments where you're disciplined and you exercise your own personal willpower, but the fact is this, apart from Jesus Christ, you are enslaved to sin, and the only way to be rescued from that is to trust in his sacrifice. And when you do, you are made to be at one with God. What was broken between you and God, you can look at it in different ways, right? The wall that was being built up uh, because of your sin that was keeping you from God is, is done away with, right? He levels that through the sacrifice he made on the cross or the chasm, that eternal chasm that, that is between you and God that you can't span, your religious works will never be enough. Your morality is never going to build a bridge between you and God. And so what did he do? He took one hand and, and placed it on you and one hand on a holy God, and he himself is the bridge. That's what redemption means. You know, this is the story of Scripture. Look, if you, if you look at the Bible as a way just to kind of simply make yourself a better person, you know, hey, I got some problems, I got some real issues, and so I'm going to start reading the Bible, and, and maybe just by reading the Bible, I can solve some of these uh, life-besetting problems that I have. Or maybe you look at the Bible as a way to make yourself a little more spiritual. You know, there are all these categories in life, and spirituality is one of them, and so you dabble in the Bible. You dabble in the Bible thinking that somehow, as you're dabbling in it, you'll become a little more spiritual. Or maybe your approach to God is this, you know, he's one of many topics and, you know, albeit he's important, but he's not the only one. And so you read the Bible just to glean a little more information about God, a little more data that you can know about him. Or, you know, maybe your life, you're struggling with guilt and shame and you just don't feel good about yourself. And so you think, you know what, I'm going to go to church a couple times. I'm going to read the Bible and maybe this will help my well-being Maybe this will help my self-perception. If I could just read the book a little bit, I'll feel better about myself. If that's your approach to the Bible, I want to tell you, you will miss the point. The point of the Bible is not to make you a good person or to help you be a little more spiritual or to give you a little more information about God or to help you feel better about yourself. The point of the Bible is to direct you to the person of Christ who sacrificed his life in your place to rescue you from the slavery of your sin to make you one with God. That is the message of the Bible. And this, by the way, this, by the way, is exactly what Jesus said. He was on the road to Emmaus. He's walking with disciples. They don't know that it's him. This is post-resurrection. And they're looking at this guy that they're walking with like, are you kidding me? You don't know everything that's transpired about Jesus and, and uh, how he suffered and how he was crucified and he's dead and the story's over. You know, that's it. And the Bible says this, as he's walking with those disciples, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter his glory? Check this Bible study out. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Like how cool would that Bible study have been? 
Like you're walking with the Lord, right? And they don't know it's the Lord. And they're like, dude, where have you been? Like what planet have you been living on? Don't you, haven't you heard about Jesus of Nazareth? And, and he did all these things, these mighty signs and wonders. And then they crucified him and the story is over. And then he says, really? Really? Haven't you read your Bibles? Haven't you read your Bibles? And then he starts from the book of Genesis and he goes all the way through scripture. Now, our English Bible ends with Malachi. That's not the way it ends with the Hebrew Bible. But for the sake of the conversation, he starts in Genesis and goes all the way through Revelation. And he shows them all the scriptures that identified the reality that Messiah fundamentally would have to suffer. Like this is not just some New Testament concept. You know, sometimes I, I, I do this to myself, and I shouldn't do it, but I, I watch these secular documentaries on the Bible. You know, like sometimes PBS comes out with the craziest stuff, right? And, and, and some of these documentaries are like, oh, yeah, well, you know, this, this, this idea of a suffering Messiah was never in the Old Testament. Paul conjured it up, and it's like, really? Have you actually read the Bible? Have you read the Bible? This uh, noted scholar of Scripture said this, he said, cut the Bible anywhere and it bleeds. The blood of Jesus stains every page, every book in both Testaments. And I think that's, that's so true. You know, today what I want to do is I want to I walk with you from Genesis to Revelation, right? Because this is the second service and I got you as long as I want, <laughs> all right? It, this won't take a long time unless I don't think you're paying attention. And if I think that you're not paying attention, I will add scriptures to this, and I will extend it, all right, because I've had to be very careful about the selection of scriptures because there just are so many. I'm not saying that these would be the scriptures that he would have chosen as he walked with these disciples from Moses, right, from Moses, which is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, starting with Genesis, all the way through the prophets, and for that for us, that would be Malachi. But today, what you're going to see is what some people call the scarlet thread of redemption through the Bible. This, this idea of the Messiah, whom we know to be Jesus the Christ, suffering for our sake to make us one with God. So, so I bro I've broken this up into different sections today. And I hope that, I hope that this blesses you. Uh, section number one is this. Messiah's victory will mean suffering through sacrifice. Messiah's victory will mean suffering through sacrifice. Of course, we start in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the Bible says this. This is post-fall. Adam has transgressed. Eve was deceived. And the curse is being laid out. And God says this, To the serpent, I will put war between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, singular, capitalized. Paul would later say that seed, of course, is referring to Messiah. In Greek, Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one of God to bring redemption. He shall bruise your head. Remember, he's talking to the serpent, the serpent of old, the devil, fallen cherubim, fallen cherub, Lucifer, uh, Satan, he shall bruise your head. You will not have the victory. You will not be victorious. You will not win in the end. You will be destroyed. And, and you shall bruise his heel. In the process, Messiah will suffer, right? This is, this is redemption. This, this is exchange. This is sacrifice in the exchange. You know, it is interesting. It's possible that when God says this as part of the curse, 
to Satan and you shall bruise his heel. It's possible he was referring to the process of crucifixion because some of you know this. When a person was crucified, the nails were driven through their wrists surgically to hit these specific nerve points and then their feet were placed one on top of the other and the nail, there was a third nail that was driven through the front of one foot and through the, the heel of the back foot. And so that that foot that was behind the front foot was literally nailed to that piece of wood. And when someone was being crucified, the process of crucifixion wasn't death through like bleeding out. It was through suffocation. Because a person, when they're crucified uh, in, in, in this type of way, when, when their body is down and the full weight of their body is resting on that heel, the diaphragm pushes all of the air out of the lungs. So when you're, when you're down, all of the air has been pushed out of your lungs. You have to pull yourself up to get a, a, a breath of air. And then you let yourself down again. And that pressure pushes the air out. So when you were watching someone be crucified, they were writhing on, the, on that cross, pulling themselves up and letting themselves down to the, to the place where their arms would be shaken. And, and oftentimes they would pop out of, of joint. And so literally it was death by suffocation. But the process of it left a bruise on the heel of the person who was being crucified. And so it's possible here that God, looking forward some 4,000 years or so, however you would calculate that, is indicating the way that Messiah would suffer. We know that his suffering was foreshadowed when Abraham was called to take his only son, Isaac, and to bind him. You remember we talked about this in Genesis 22 too. Take now your son, God said to Abraham, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, very, very specific place that we'll talk about in a second, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. So you remember this story. God says to Abraham to take his son. Of course, that was not his only son because Ishmael was a son too, but Ishmael was not the son of promise regardless of, of what Islam teaches. They say that he is. The Bible says that he isn't. No, Isaac was the son of promise. And this, by the way, is the first mention of the word love. Anytime you have a word or a principle mentioned for the first time, it's very significant. God waited to use the word love for this particular story. So Abraham was called to take his only son, the son whom he loved, to, to offer him on a particular mountain that God would show him as a burnt offering. That mountain was Mount Moriah. We'll talk later today how that became the centralized place of sacrifice for the Jewish people and the same place where Christ was crucified on the cross. And so obviously, emblematically, um, metaphorically, as a foreshadow, God is looking forward to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Already here in the book of Genesis, uh, we're looking at this suffering Savior. Sacrifice was instituted in Israel for the atonement of sin. Some 400 years after this story, the Bible says in the book of Exodus, you remember the children of Israel were in Egypt and they were enslaved under the dictatorial rule of Pharaoh and they had cried out for a redeemer and God was raising up a redeemer. His name was Moses. 
By the way, Moses as a prophet was a foreshadow of the prophet who is to come. The prophet who is to come, Deuteronomy chapter 18 and chapter 19, is pointing to Jesus. He is not just the king. He is also the prophet, and he is also the priest. He fulfilled all three of those roles. But remember, uh, there had been a series of plagues that had been poured out on Egypt. Pharaoh was unrelenting. Pharaoh was unwilling to give the people to God, even to just go and to make offering to God. And so that that tenth and final plague was the destruction or the death of the firstborn. And this was what God had instituted for the children of Israel. He said to them, if you want to preserve your firstborn on the tenth of Nisan, select a lamb for yourself and for your family. Bring that lamb into your home and let it live with you for four days. From four days of selection on the 14th of Nisan, that's just uh, the, the the month in the Hebrew calendar, you're going to take that lamb, you're going to sacrifice it, you're going to pour the blood into a basin, you're going to take hyssop and dip the hyssop into the basin filled with blood, and then you're going to sprinkle the doorpost and the lentil of your house in the form of a cross, right? You're going to sprinkle the doorpost and the lentil of your house, and when the angel of destruction comes, he will see the blood of the sacrifice, and he will pass over in mercy. This is why it's called Passover. The sacrifice was made the blood was poured out and as that sacrifice was made the angel of the stru- of destruction would pass over that home in mercy while they deserved justice it was mercy and grace that fundamentally would be given we know all of this was a foreshadow of the ultimate and true passover lamb who is jesus christ this system of sacrifice was institutionalized in the Levitical law, in the temple, and then also in the tabernacle. Leviticus 17.5 says this, to the end, speaking of this process of sacrifice, to the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices which they offer in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord, at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So sacrifice was instituted in Israel for the atonement of sin, but it was centralized in Jerusalem. I I think this point is so beautiful and so significant. The very place that Abraham bound Isaac was also the place that David purchased from Aruna, the threshing floor of Aruna. You know, the judgment was just about to come upon the children of Israel. David had to make a sacrifice. He chose the place where Isaac was bound to make his sacrifice, and he purchased that place. The Bible says, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the place where Isaac was bound became the place where David offered peace offerings and sacrifices to God, it ultimately became the place where the first temple uh, was built and then also the place where the second temple was built. And the very place where David offered those sacrifices was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, was put. And so the high priest would go in once a year and he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on the the mercy seat to make atonement to redeem not only himself from his, his sins, but the children of Israel from their sins as well. And then what we see also is that this is the same mountain ridge that Christ was crucified on. So at the apex of Mount Moriah, just north of the Temple Mount, where those sacrifices would have been being made, is where Jesus was crucified right outside of the Damascus Gate. 
His sacrifice was declared by the prophets a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. David said this prophetically, speaking on behalf of Messiah. He said in Psalm 22, verse 14, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me. This is the Messiah speaking to God the Father. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. A thousand years before Christ was crucified, 800 years before crucifixion was established as a means of capital punishment, the Bible is speaking in very specific terms. Isaiah, some six centuries before Christ was incarnate, said this, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone, away, gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It was some 600 years later that John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he declared these words, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I want you to think about the significance of what John was recognizing and realizing. John was considering the whole of the Old Testament and he was connecting Christ the Messiah to the Passover lamb. And he was saying, everyone draw your attention because this is the lamb. Some 1,400 Passovers had been celeb celebrated from the point of Exodus 12 to this point. And now John says, hey, set your eyes on him because he is the lamb. He is the sacrifice. He is the one who provides atonement, not just for your sin, but for the sins of the whole world. Matthew chapter 26, verse 27. As Jesus is wrapping up his earthly ministry, he's celebrating the Passover Seder with his disciples. Judas has gone to betray him to the, to, the, to the priest and to the chief priests. And as he's celebrating this Passover Seder with his disciples, of course, for, for those of you who have celebrated the Seder with us, you know there are four cups. The whole dinner is arranged around four cups of wine. And the third cup is called the cup of redemption. It was at this third cup that Jesus, he took it and he said to his disciples, drink from it all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And then it was only a number of hours later that he was crucified on the cross and as he had given his spirit into the hands of the Father and he had breathed his last, you guys know the story, a soldier came and pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out of him. His sacrifice was preached by the apostles. Romans 5.9 says this, Paul speaking, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And Paul said again in Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And then again, the author to the book of Hebrews said, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let me tell you today, the book is about him. The book is about Christ. It's about Jesus. It's about how God can take what is broken in your life and heal you and cleanse you and restore you to bring you to a place where you are at one with God. Not only that, but listen, redemption is the theme of worship in heaven. 
John says this in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, to him, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Have you experienced that today? Have you been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you experienced the, the power of forgiveness in your life? He says to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Check this, this song of worship. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said. And finally, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, this is one of the songs that we'll be singing in heaven. This is our song to the Lamb, for you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Listen, Genesis answers the biggest questions in life. Who is God? Where do we come from? Why is there evil? Is there life after death? What is the meaning of life? And I want to tell you as a point of punctuation to this study, I want to tell you what the meaning of life is. Jesus sacrificed his life in your place to rescue you from the slavery of your sin to make you one with God for all of eternity. Have you received the gift of salvation that he freely offers to you? And if the answer is yes, are you thanking God for his infinite goodness and grace in your life? Man, we sang that this morning, the second song, the goodness of God. How good is he? Look, we come with all of our failures and all of our shame and all of our guilt. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we're serial in it. It's not just once, it's over and over. And we come and confess and he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Today I want to close by reading a psalm over your life. This is a psalm of David, Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget, forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from destruction? Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies? Who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's? The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And his place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments to do them. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, 
who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers of his who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.